Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, here to launch our new season and introduce a new format that we're doing, the expert interview. For this, we're going to hand the microphone over to one of our colleagues and have them talk to another expert in their field. We're starting the format and the season with the very timely topic of the ongoing protests in Belarus. My colleague, Jonathan Katz, who's director for our Democracy Initiatives program and an expert in civil society and civil society support, particularly in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, is running the podcast today and doing the interview. Over to Jonathan. Hi, I'm Jonathan Katz. I'm the Director of Democracy Initiatives and a Senior Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Today's Out of Order podcast, we're going to focus on the current situation in Belarus, including the standoff, or what some call a stalemate between Belarusians and longstanding dictator Alexander Lukashenko. Joining me to discuss the state of ongoing peaceful protests across Belarus and what comes next is Artyom Shrebman a Belarusian political analyst based in Minsk. I'm going to discuss the ongoing protests, external factors impacting the situation in Belarus, including Mr. Lukashenko's growing cooperation reliance on Mr. Putin to stay in power. We're also going to take a look at the response of the European Union, United States, and translating community to what's happening in Belarus. First, let's take a quick step back and how we got to where things currently stand in Belarus. Here's what you need to know. On August 9, Belarusians went to the polls to vote for president of their country. Uh, Belarus, for over 26 years, almost the entirety of its independence uh, from 1991, uh, has been led by autocrat Alexander Lukashenko, who's ruled the nation of over 9 million with an iron fist, repressing Belarusians, jailing political opponents, and consistently carrying out fraudulent elections. Fast forward to the spring and summer of 2020, and few could have imagined or read the tea leaves in Minsk, Moscow, Washington, Brussels, or in its neighborhood, uh, the push for real political change in Belarus and what was to take place. So what were the catalysts leading to the desire for change in Belarus? Anyone following Belarus in the West or East saw Lukashenko's utter disregard and failure as a leader uh, res- responding to the Delhi uh, coronavirus pandemic. He said absurdly that vodka can treat the virus uh, as COVID spread uh, across his country. In the spring, Lukashenko then cracked down, including arresting, forcing to flee uh, possible presidential opponents. Lukashenko saw these candidates as real threats to his power. Despite Lukashenko's best efforts to prevent and what he naively thought were the only threats to his power, he unwittingly opened the door to several brave uh, Belarusian women, including Svetlana Tikhonovskaya and others from opposition uh, campaigns who coalesced together to take on Lukashenko. They stepped into leadership positions as part of a grassroots campaign. And there was new wind in the sails of the opposition, including uh, what many saw were massive pre-election rallies. So immediately after the election on August 10th, uh, Belarusians took to the street and they have never left. Democracy. 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 
Freedom Fail. I'm here today with Artem Schreibman, uh, who is who's coming to us from from Minsk, from Belarus today. Uh, it's September 11th, and it's it's late at night in Minsk. It's been a long week, and we really appreciate uh, you joining us today. So much has happened since August 9th, when this, there was a faulty election, one which much of the international community has condemned as 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 not a real election. But the following day, protests started. We're over. Uh, 30 days now of Belarusians protesting. And back in August, a few days after the election, um, you wrote uh, a piece uh, with Carnegie, uh, Carnegie's Moscow uh, Center, saying, you know, that that the Belarus protests signaled the autumn of Lukashenko's regime. When you look where things are today, uh, writing only, you know, several weeks ago, but so much has happened in in that space, do you still think this is the autumn of Lukashenko's regime? And maybe you could just give us an update a month after uh, this election took place on August 9th, where things stand in in in, uh, in the capital in Minsk. Um, and since you're really seeing this front and center on a daily basis, can you talk to us whether or not you still feel like uh, Lukashenko's uh, autumn is 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 here. It's definitely an autumn of this regime, but I was speaking and I am speaking in a more historic terms. It doesn't mean that the regime will necessarily fall after the autumn uh, of this year ends. Um, but generally speaking, this is of course the last, um, it's even hard to say months or years or, or weeks, but this is the uh, end of this regime because uh, it is simply it was visible even before the election that it is hard to find an agenda for this regime to run on, any positive agenda, any development agenda. But now it's just about, it's all about the exit strategy. And everybody is speaking about this. The protesters are speaking about this. Russia is speaking about the exit strategy for Lukashenko. And Lukashenko himself speaks about the early election after the constitutional revision that he now promises as the temporary attempt to calm things down and to buy him some time. If we come closer to the events of the these days that are happening now, this is the stalemate, I would say, uh, and we are witnessing the gray zone uh, in which it is unclear where the things might go. On the ground, it looks like uh, basically a weekly large demonstrations of unprecedented size for Belarus, uh, between 100,000 and 200,000 people in Minsk. Just to give you a comparison, in Moscow it would, have, it would have been more than a million people if you adjust for the numbers. And Minsk has never seen such protests in its history. And the protests have somewhat lost in their geographic, you know, spread in the country, geographic coverage. So it's not, it's now not the dozens of cities and towns, but rather up to a dozen of, of, of cities weekly. The protests do go on basically every day on a lower scale. And uh, that's where we are on the protest side, on the regime side of it. There is a mounting repressions, and this was the conscious, deliberate choice of the regime after the first initial spike in the violence just right after the election, 
there was a period of some sort of paralysis by the authorities where they just didn't know what to do. They were themselves seemingly shocked by what has happened. And then they started to regain initiative and starting to uh, return the usual mode of repressions, uh, which I would say reached also quite a brutal level uh, by now. And because we already see uh, some red lines, previously existing red lines being crossed, like women being brutally detained on the streets, like students being beaten in their universities, like, I don't know, even beach guards uh, who saved the protesters from the river where they jumped to run from the police and these beach guards being arrested for this. This isn't the first go around in terms of repression, arrest, violence. I think this, this, the scale of it is something that is, is, is different than, than sort of previous rounds of uh, repression post-election, which makes it different in that sense. Who's working with him to help him strategize? Because it seems just like you said, there seemed to be a bit of paralysis. Then it sh- sort of shifted, you know, a week later. And now you see uh, leadership or some people involved with the coordination uh, council being uh, arrested, threatened, sent out of the country, threatened with their lives. It's quite significant. And I think we're seeing, uh, we see these images uh, you know, sort of across the world, they're seeing what's happening. So a lot of brave Belarusians who are, who are sort of documenting these human rights abuses, these arrests. Uh, but who's working with uh, Lukashenko? Uh, on the advising Lukashenko, I don't think that uh, there is any serious, you know, back-channel advising going on, uh, especially if you are implying some foreign uh, advisory services. Lukashenko is a very autonomous uh, and uh, voluntaristic, in a way, actor. Uh, he does not tend to listen to um, to many people. He has some aides who whom he trusts, and we sh- one person in particular is very you know important and influential these days is Viktor Shaman, the hardliner back from the nineties, the longest-serving friend and ally of Lukashenko who has been brought back from the relatively secondary job now to advise Lukashenko on all the force, use of force against basically the protesters, the opposition, and managing the crackdown. And I think that his role should not be underestimated because he frames the presidential response in a certain way. But in the end, all of these are Lukashenko decisions and no meaningful decision can be taken without Lukashenko's green light or direct uh, order. Uh, Also, uh, we currently have some influx of Russian media specialists uh, on Belarusian state TV, especially after many dozens of TV workers went also on strike or just resigned in protest. And we're speaking about state TV. I mean, the pillar of state propaganda in Belarus uh, appeared to be crumbling as well. Uh, and this, about three dozens of, of, of Russian uh, media advisors, media specialists, have introduced some changes to media agenda of Belarusian state TV. It has become much more aggressive, much more based on the Ukrainian template, where it frames the whole protest as the battle between not just good and evil, I mean, that's obvious, but between West and Russia, between Russophobes and Russophiles, 
between Maidan forces who want to rob the country of its future and uh, patriots. So it's very, very dark, you know, white, black and white and geopolitical uh, of what, what these people brought to the table of, of media agenda. Is, 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 it, is, it, is it effective? You know, do you think that... It's, it's very hard to assess. I mean, definitely the people who are protesting do not seem to care and do not seem to listen. Uh, because they don't trust the state TV and don't watch the state TV. However, I can imagine, and I have some anecdotal evidence, including in the closer circle of mine, in the families of my friends, of the older generations who actually watch the state TV. They have not been accustomed to such a degree of hostile propaganda, and they have they are now becoming more polarized and more radical towards their own grandchildren. And that's very dramatic development, but that's what happens. This propaganda, this kind of propaganda, I mean, uh, inspired by Russian specialists probably, uh, actually um, radicalizes the remaining pro-Lukashenko supporters. I wanted to ask you about the state of opposition, because what's been unusual that I've, that I think we've also seen too, is that you have, you know, workers stepping up at state-owned industries, important industries, people who were, and I think you maybe said this too, people who were apolitical are now political. And I'm just wondering, are you seeing that core, the images of women, which has sort of just dominated, in some respects, visuals from Belarus over the last several weeks has really been quite extraordinary. Maybe talk a little bit about the state of that that transition. You started to talk about it, but is it still a, a core that is staying sticking together? Will it stick together? I think that the protest movement in Belarus is very unique because it is it ha, it cannot be described in some easy demographic terms. I cannot even like begin to 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 try to. Uh, define who is protesting. There, it's not the, prote- the protest of the city against the village, the countryside. It's not the protest of the uh, urban middle class against the, I don't know, populist elites. It's not the protest of poor against the rich. Uh, it's not the protest of young against the old. It's not the protest of women against patriarchy. It, it's just uh, the nationwide protests where, of course, as, as, as in any protest, uh, younger people dominate just by fact of being available to protest because, I mean, pensioners seldom go to streets, but it doesn't mean that these people do not, I mean, I, I firmly with Lukashenko. Lukashenko has lost actually most of his support base in very traditional, you know, constituencies that he had, like the state-owned enterprises, like the countryside, small towns, uh, I mean, all of this, all this politicization that we see, all this political, you know, turbulence that we've seen actually started way before the election in spring. And then it started with one blogger, Sergei Tikhanovsky, traveling the regions of the country. And he is the husband of the presidential candidate, Svetlana Tikhanovsky, who has now become a star, uh, first beginning as a reluctant candidate, replacing her husband, who was jailed back in May. But he started his traveling, touring the country, from the countryside, from the regions. He didn't even come to Minsk. And this shows you that this protest is not anymore about any particular demographic slash geographic divide. Um, It's a very nationwide, very broadly um, conceptualized pro-democratic protest. But as you've said, uh, it evolves. It evolves in terms of 
adding some new, you know, uh, flavors to it. Because, for example, after many, after the regime has shown that it is okay with brutally detaining men, routinely jailing them, but is not as okay with doing the same with women, women came at the forefront of the protest, not just in terms of uh, being the leaders of it, which is remarkable. We have like more female leaders of the protest than and of the opposition than male male, male leaders, but all, all, also in terms of the composition of the protesters. And it's one evolution. Another evolution is the agenda, because after Russian President Vladimir Putin has sort of supported Lukashenko, this is not the final support, this is not like unconditional support, but this is a, a, a relative support. And this was perceived this way. Uh, and you, you know, overtones of pro-independence, pro-sovereignty, anti-Kremlin uh, narratives started to be added to the uh, agenda of the protests. Uh, yeah, just, just, just to, I mean, develop, uh, just to elaborate, I mean, if Vladimir Putin, for example, proceeds with this, if he doubles down on his support, if the support goes beyond uh, just rhetoric where it is now, if the support becomes full-fledged economic assistance, influx of money, or God forbid, military or paramilitary assistance, it has a potential to completely reframe the protest into the, not just anti-Lukashenko, but anti-Lukashenko slash anti-Kremlin. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you about this issue of, of open support from Putin and from the Kremlin. Like we saw in Ukraine too, not only did the more forceful Kremlin-Putin role in Ukraine really help further strengthen the self-identity of Ukrainians at the time. I mean, you're seeing, uh, you started to talk about self-identity and I'm just wondering, you know, how much this has impacted that and, you know, what does Lukashenko want from Mr. Putin? What does Mr. Putin want from Mr. Lukashenko? One of the mistakes that I see from the Kremlin often is this lack of understanding of what people want or desire that somehow force by force or by will, you can control other people. And that, you know, in this case, what Belarusians might want. And so I don't know if you view it in the same way, sort of ask you about that. Yeah, John, no, that's that's the problem with analyzing Kremlin foreign policy intentions because it is all it is often the analysis of how far Putin is detached from uh, the rational analysis of the events on the ground. So we we always tend to we have to calculate whether Putin you know takes into the account the opinion of Belarusians or he just disregards it, and this has become it becomes you know mind reading effort. Uh, always. That is why it's very hard. But I would probably start with your first question uh, about the impact, because so far, I don't think that the impact of the support that Putin has provided has been very significant because the support has not been very significant. So far, the support have been mostly, as I've said, rhetorical. And uh, if it, of course, develops into something larger, as I've said, this will trigger the reframing of the protests almost instantaneously, because uh, people do still remember in the last year a lengthy uh, negotiations on the deepening of integration between two countries. Uh, and this frightened many in Belarus because in Belarus there is a near consensus 
support for the country's independence. There is just a very fringe, all the polls show that there is just a very fringe marginal single-digit support for the joining of Russian Federation. And that is why it's not that just Lukashenko will lose his, you know, remnants of legitimacy if he uh, will try to sell out the country's sovereignty to buy him some time. But um, Russia will significantly lose in support um, as an as a political actor, as Kremlin, but also, I mean, it cannot go unnoticed for the Belarusian-Russian relations between the peoples, unfortunately, because this has never, popular emotions cannot, you know, to, to, to the necessary degree, differentiate between the Kremlin and the people. Uh, and that is why this is also quite a dangerous territory if two leaders are so far detached from the popular opinions that they can engage in such side deals, it would have problem problems for the long-term relations between two friendly nations, currently very friendly nations. And um, I think and hope both that Putin understands this, and that is why I don't think, coming to a second question, that he will actually force Lukashenko uh, to deliver some, you know, great uh, and, and, and strategic political concessions here and now. Because it will simply... Uh, from the from many, many perspectives, this is too illogical uh, for Vladimir Putin to do. Because first of all, I mean, it will completely you know reframe the protest into the anti-Russian protest. But it's also it's not clear clear whether Lukashenko's signature under the any papers he will be forced to sign will mean anything in a couple of years where these decisions will treaties have to be implemented. So the signature of a leader with a weakened legitimacy is not the strongest guarantee of the agreement. And also it is very likely that the countries like the US and the EU will not recognize the agreements, uh, you know, uh, by Lukashenko, concluded by Lukashenko, which means that Belarus can become another large Crimea, which is five, five times larger than Crimea in terms of it being isolated by the international community, the, you know, annexation or any incorporation deal being not recognized, and so Russia will have to endlessly spend money into maintaining this black hole, um, legally speaking. Uh, and what Putin would probably want and wants from Lukashenko is two things. First is to uh, maybe some quick concessions that he Lukashenko is, will be ready to deliver. It may be some privatization deals of these state enterprises that are still very, you know, attractive to some Russian businesses. It may be some logistical, you know, redirection of some Belarusian trading um, routes from Baltic states to Russia, for example. Uh, it may be some military deals like, um, say, deployment of some Russian uh, troops or bases. I mean, this would be a last resort for Lukashenko, but still Russia may try to push it through because at least Lukashenko will have time to deliver it. Uh, I don't think Russia will push for anything more significant in terms of political concessions. But secondly, I think Russia will try to push Lukashenko towards the idea that his time is up and the transition has to start. But in this transition, Russia would like to ensure that it is a powerful stakeholder and it has its voice and it's not that necessarily it will cherry, you know, it will handpick the 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 successor. 
but at least that the composition of Belarusian power after the transition will be favorable to Russia. And Belarus will not leave Russian sphere of influence after the transition, and Russia will have more levers of influence into the Belarusian domestic affairs after Lukashenko departs. So this, I think, will be the major intention by the Russians. And to do this, which is a very you know, hard political task to do, Russia will have to tread lightly uh, without any brutal ultimatums here and now. So what, what is, you know, the part of that question too was, what does uh, uh, Lukashenko want from Putin? And then I'm going to ask you, you know, sort of, you know, one other question too, sort of um, about about sort of the response of 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 the West of the United States and the EU. But but I wanted to ask because I, you know, the question is he's somebody Lukashenko, somebody who stayed in power for twenty six years. Um, he's done it brutally. Um, he's done it whether it's skillfully or not, and he doesn't seem to be somebody who wants to to leave the scene as somebody who was in power before Putin came to power who also fancied himself maybe as the one to be the president of a, you know, I know this may be sort of old, old thinking of, of this union state. Uh, and um, it, it seems to me maybe that he might want to kind of, maybe he's willing to give more uh, quickly and that Putin may want to more move more quickly as we saw in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine to take advantage of a moment in time, whether it's what's taking place in Belarus, but also the lack of, of Western um, capacity and attention at this moment to, to react. And what I've noticed with Putin is that he tends to move fairly quickly and very definitively when he sees an opening. Uh, but I wanted to ask, really going back to Lukashenko, what he wants, and then we'll, we'll move to the, to, that, to the question of the West. First of all, Lukashenko does not think that his position is as desperate as you and I believe. Uh, and that is why he's more confident, maybe overly confident in, in himself that he shouldn't, that he should be. But this frames his thinking. And he does not think that he somehow must give up his power to anyone, be it domestic challengers or Vladimir Putin. His power hunger is the reason why we're here. And he, his, him being hungry for power is not something that relates only to the domestic uh, issues. If Putin will make an ultimatum of, um, I don't know, Alexander, here are the papers, here are the papers, you're becoming a governor, Lukashenko will just leave. And then Putin will have to uh, deploy some financial, you know, maybe pressure uh, some very dire financial pressure, Lukashenko will stop paying bills. Lukashenko will stop paying loans back to Russia. And if Putin will think about something else, well, then he will face uh, the need to, to start an outright war uh, and the full-on occupation. Because when Putin moves militarily, when Putin moves in with, with hard power, he at least has to calculate and has to know that the people there on the ground will not resist or will somehow at least uh, passively be loyal to him, like in Crimea, say. Belarus is a completely different story. To control Belarus militarily, you would need to deploy a full-scale occupation force uh, with, a possible, with a possibility of par- partisan movements, guerrilla movements all over the country. I don't think this is something that Putin is ready to do 
here and now, uh, given the state of Russian economy, given the risks of overwhelming sanctions and given the upcoming election in Russia as well. This is too risky. That's why I don't. I, I think this is out of the take out of the uh, you know agenda with when it comes to Belarus Russia prospects of relations. But back to your question of what Lukashenko wants, I think he wants uh, money and he wants appreciation of his. He wants Putin to believe his story, his narrative. His narrative being the Belarus and Russia jointly resisting the Western interference and Western inspired color revolution in Belarus, which is an attack of, on both of us. And he wants Putin to appreciate how Belarus became the, the you know, bastion of, of resistance of the Slavic Brotherhood to Western interference and to pay up for the services. I understand how ambitious this sounds, but Lukashenko is quite an ambitious man. And uh, I think that this is his plan and intention. I don't think he expects anything more from Vladimir Putin. And I think that even given his vulnerability now, he will resist any moves from Moscow uh, that would hint on limiting Lukashenko's power in the country in favor of Moscow. Uh, because in the end, it's all about the being in control. So Lukashenko, if he embarks on the transition, he wants the transition to be conducted on his rules. And that is why if Putin will press, there will be new conflicts between Moscow and Minsk now. Uh, again, you should not view Lukashenko as an actor who is somehow bound by rules of normal international decency like the need to pay your loans, for example. And if your reputation, international reputation, is ruined, it sort of frees you up to do newer things, things that you ha couldn't have done beforehand. That is why Russia has not as many levers over Lukashenko as we might imagine. Uh, all the financial, all the you know, political levers that Russia might imagine to have are actually there only to the point until Lukashenko is ready to agree with this. If he's not, I can easily imagine him uh, shutting the door in Sochi, you know, um, and, and leaving the, the summit. And that is why I think Putin realizing this will not be overly um, assertive, uh, understanding that time basically plays on the Russian side. Excellent. Uh, Artem, just one um uh, one last question too, which is about about the about the West and the response to the West and sort of what um, what you see and and how Belarusians want the West to respond. Can maybe just give give a sense of that because I think it it fits into the calculation clearly of Lukashenko and and of Putin and sort of what's taking place on the ground. Uh, I think that uh, unfortunately it has to be admitted that. Uh, the collective West has no leverage uh, to meaningfully influence the situation on the ground in Belarus. And that is why um, this is completely different from cases of Moldova or Ukraine, where West has a significant presence on the ground, political influence, economic influence. Nothing of this sort exists in Belarus. And therefore, the expectations of many Belarusians, but also from the political actors in Belarus, the opposition and Lukashenko alike, are not as high. Um, it's, it's just realistically, West cannot do much. Uh, people who protest against Lukashenko, of course, expect solidarity with them, 
of course, expect some humanitarian relief to those who were wounded or, you know, suffered from the repression. Um, there was a recent initiative by uh, Visegrad four countries, for example, to give visa-free regime to Belarusians uh, to the European Union. I mean, something of the sort would be greatly admired by Belarusians. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the West's option, the West, the options of the US and the EU are very limited, and that is why they have to do two things. Um, first is doing some symbolic face-saving sanctions, which are mostly directed into the internal consumption, which do not change things on the ground. And secondly, to engage Russia, uh, but do it in a smart way. Uh, I think the US has started to do this uh, surprisingly earlier and smarter than the EU. Uh, basically, the message that needs to be sent, I think, to, 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 to Moscow is twofold. First, if you are constructive in facilitating some sort of peaceful transition of power in Belarus uh, without trying to absorb this territory, then we are not aiming at trying to drag Belarus out of your orbit of influence because even Belarus does not want to become the member of NATO or the EU. This is just not the question on the agenda. This is not the geopolitical struggle. So this is the first part of the message. And the second one is if you do move with some absorption, you know, incorporation uh, plans and moves, we will uh, sanction the hell out of you first. And second, we will not recognize this as the legal move. And this, you know, not ultimatum, but a choice probably frames Russia and can frame Russia for a more constructive and more positive uh, attitudes towards what can ha what can happen and cannot happen in Belarus. And I think that it is not necessarily the side deal, the deal between West and Russia about Belarus, because again, to engage in some de such deals, West must, might, must have some influence in Belarus first, which it doesn't have. But it at least puts Russia into, into the choices, into the choice of either behaving like a you know, rogue actor, uh, as it did probably in Crimea, or trying to facilitate some sort of universally acceptable uh, way out of this. I think apart from this, West is not able to do much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. You know, we thank you for your thoughts. And, um, and certainly, uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out sort of that exact role, um, try to read the minds, as you said, it's tough to, of whether it's Lukashenko or Mr. Putin, or how how to react. Um, I think there's an incredible amount of both solidarity and admiration for Belarusians who are standing up and um, are seeing these images um, sort of these really incredible images of very brave uh, people from all walks of life uh, standing up for, I think, what they want is political change and it's sort of an end to repression. So on that note, we look forward to our you know sort of next conversation, uh, hopefully with you and hope to host you at GMF at some point uh, with colleagues either in, in the U.S. or Europe. Uh, and uh, we, we unfortunately didn't get to a number of other topics, but we, we look forward to our next conversation. And thank you so much. Uh, for joining us at, at such a late time of the day in Minsk. Thank you. Yeah, and, and please stay safe. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant, Rachel Tausenfreund, and me, Sydney Simon. 
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.